chapter 6, we're going to read verses 11 through 18. We're going to finish our series in the study of Galatians today. Finally, after 21 weeks in the book, we're going to close up this book. Also, if you're in the back and you don't have a seat, I got, I got a few seats down here in the front, three over here on the right and a couple down here. So um, if you need a seat, come on down and, um, and let's get ready to dive right in. The book of Galatians, chapter 6. Verse 18, and I'm going to read through the end of the text. If you have it, say yeah. yeah. All right, it reads like this. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. That's Paul. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this, peace and mercy be upon them. And upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. The title of our message today is The New Creation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word and for this time. We thank you for all that you've done in our study of Paul's letter to the church in Galatea. God, we thank you for a maturing faith. We thank you for a call out of religious practice, ritual, and tradition into a depth of relationship, a depth of relationship that provides us with liberty, liberty to live, move, and have our being in you. God, we thank you that when we allow you to lead, we produce new fruit. We look new. We're made new. Now, Father, today with this final word in the series, I ask that you'd open our hearts and our minds. God, I ask that you'd use me to great effect in whatever manner you see fit. Remove from me the bondage of me, in Jesus' name, amen. I can't believe we're done with the book of Galatians today. <laughs> the big idea today, if you're taking notes or if you have a workbook that we've been using in our small groups to study through the book of Galatians, the big idea or big question is this, are you religious or are you in a relationship with Jesus? And I know you're going to say, relationship, so simple, so easy. But today we're going to break down some of the common trappings that happen to Christians, to believers, that eliminates their ability to engage with an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ because we tend to fall back into a religious practice. Now, the first thing I want to do is just kind of talk about the tone and tenor of this last part of the text. It's important that you should know that each one of the Pauline epistles, be they the letter to the Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, or any one of these letters that we've studied over the last four years, Ephesians, Colossians, Galatians, Philippians, even the letters that he writes to specific people, the pastoral epistles, or the, the letter to Philemon, each one of these letters is often written by Paul to a people or 
or person for a specific purpose. Paul is not a writer of letters to say, hey, how's your mama? Can't wait to see you again soon. Paul writes with a reason. And often the reason that the Apostle Paul is writing letters is to make correction and also impartation so that the people who have come encounter with Paul's ministry, the ministry of Jesus Christ, Christ crucified and resurrected, would be fulfilled and that they would be matured in that faith. And the reason he does this is because we, both the first century churches and us today, oftentimes, though we come to a new revelation of Jesus, we'll struggle in holding on to that revelation because we've got so much of the world speaking at us. We, we come to the altar, we get an altar call, we, we read a verse for the very first time, something new happens, renewed mind, there's a click, there's a spark, and things are changing in us, and we love it. And then we go about our business and our culture, the critics, the world, things start to creep back in. And it's easy for all of us to lose not only the fervor, the fire, the vigor that we had in the moment when we encountered Christ, but also the power to walk it out. And so when Paul writes, he's writing doctrine, teaching to people who are already believers so that the experience they had would be fortified with revelation knowledge so they're not just the kind of people who are ruled by their emotions. Their faith is both heart and head. Y'all with me? And this is what's important for you to know about your faith, because I know that critics of our faith will tell you that Christianity is just faith, and it, and it doesn't match it with science, and you, you got to believe, you got to really believe some nonsense if you want to be a Christian. But me, I, it's like, you know, in Nacho Libre, I, I don't believe in religion, I, I just believe in science, right? That's the common critique. But the beauty of our faith is that it, it's, it's not just an experiential faith. Walking with Jesus is not about how you feel. It's about what you know that informs how you feel and what you do with your feet in Jesus' name. And so Paul writes this letter. Now, you should know that oftentimes Paul himself did not write the letter. The common practice at this time for a teacher such as Paul would have been to have dictated the letter to a scribe. And so the words that we have written in our page, we know to be... Paul's words, though often not coming from Paul's pen, they came from his heart and from his mouth. This is important for you to know because it allowed Paul and other teachers in this day and age to be able to speak freely, to be able to think as they wrote and as they spoke, to be able to engage in discourse with their scribes and ask, does that get my point across? No. And there would be a communion, a conversation to get the right things down on paper. That's important because right here, at the end of this letter, Paul starts this part of the process and says, see with what letters I am writing to you with my own hand. The audience to this letter would have received this, and the last part they would have known, hey, um, this matters. Paul set the scribe and said, you step away, I want to write this part. This is as if the pastor, teacher, mentor, someone that you trust and that you honor in your life was to pull you aside and say, I know what we do on Sundays for everybody and it's for you, but I have something special I want to share with you. This is like an aside, a moment for Paul and his people to really get down and dirty. Amen? 
And the reason I share all this with you is because Paul, well, he plays a little around, a, 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 around a little bit here in this last part. He, he, he gets a little poetic. He, he gets a little parabolic here. He, he, he starts to do what Paul does best, which is use words to paint a picture. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but if you read enough of the Pauline epistles, you'll find that he's, he's like most pastors, ah, bro, he's long-winded. Amen? He can talk. How many of you all have somebody in your life that they can talk? They can talk. Some of y'all are looking at each other right now. That's interesting. Some of us are, are quiet. We're reserved. We like to listen. We'll speak when it's necessary, when it's appropriate, when it matters. And some of us just don't know when to shut up. You're looking at one of them right here. I, I'm never done talking. I'm always talking. I'm just, and I call it processing when that sounds healthier. But I'm mostly just a chatty Kathy. And Paul is like that too. And at the end of this text, Paul takes that unique skill of being verbose and uses it to his good. Paul was made this way. Paul is a teacher of teachers, calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul's unique gifting is to take information, refine information, improve information, and make it so that there's no question about the information. And Paul sometimes can write very long sentences. In fact, Paul's longest sentence is, is actually just in the next letter. It's right here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14. That's one sentence. 257 words. Amen? And if you have teenagers, you know that's 256 words longer than most of their responses. Amen? How you doing? Good. Paul is uniquely made to use words and, frankly, a lot of words. But if you ever read first, the first Ephesians and those verses from 3 to 14, you'll find that the way he uses the words are exactly how every single word is supposed to be meant. There's nothing wasted, nothing lost. It's perfect doctrine, perfectly explaining what we need to know. And that I share with you today to tell you this. Paul is picked by God. Paul is a leader chosen by Jesus, uniquely qualified, specifically made, and supernaturally deployed to be the one who writes two-thirds of the New Testament, to be the one who imparts the bulk of our Christian doctrine, to be the one who helps us really put meat on our encounter with Jesus. And he does this, Jesus picks Paul because that's Jesus' thing. He loves to pick people for their uniqueness. He could have picked somebody like teenage boys to write doctrine. And there would have been four gospels and then nothing else. But he picks a man like Paul because of how he's made him so that he can deploy him and use him to great effect. I share that with you today because we're going to talk about the new creation we're going to talk about this line in verse 15 where Paul says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Only thing that counts is new creation. And I don't want you, before we get to that doctrinal concept, to miss this. You can't think that when we're talking about spiritual regeneration or the new creation, that God is trying to limit, break, destroy who you are uniquely, fearfully, and wonderfully made. I want you to hear this today. When God made you, he did not make a mistake. He was well pleased in you. He loves you. He adores you. He thinks of you as his masterpiece. In my mind, he's often calling angels over. Come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. Look. 
Isn't she perfect? And you need to know that because you rarely call yourself over to the mirror and go, look. Didn't God made me perfect? And if you didn't do that today, I want to push you to do that. You said, oh, I'm not very conceited. You might need a little more excitement about yourself in your life because God is awfully excited about you. Amen? Now, I'm not talking about perfect personal affirmations. I'm not saying I'm good enough and I'm smart enough because the truth is you are never enough. But because Jesus has made you brand new and he lives in you, well, God's good enough and I'm smart enough and doggone it, even when I think I'm ugly, he's pretty. Amen. Come on, somebody. What I want you to know before we talk about transformation is God does not destroy you. God remakes you into the exact nature of who you were called to be. And so he uses a man like Paul who talks too much, preached so long a man fell out the window and died. Which tells me I got at least two or three hours. Broncos game doesn't start till two. He picks a man like Paul because he loves Paul, because he uniquely made Paul. So when he goes to deliver this word through Paul, it's beautiful. I had a mentor tell me one time, preaching is the gospel through personality, which is good for me because he didn't have much personality. He was kind of quiet, kind of reserved. And I don't know if you've met me. (laughs) The gospel is perfect. And he wants to share it through you so that it can be even more beautiful. Amen? Now, here's what Paul does in this poetic play and parables, this last part of the text as he writes with flowery language. Paul is trying to say in a nutshell this one simple thing. You know, we've been talking about religion and religion. Well, it gets us very close, but it also gets us very confused. That's what this whole thing says. If I were to boil it down, Paul says, you know, religion, boy, it gets us near, but in many ways it gets us far. And what he's trying to do is explain the difference between the religion that he's been preaching against, the practice and the teaching of the Judaizers, Jewish teachers who have come in to infiltrate this church, these churches in Galatea, and with the true and living gospel, which is it's not about rules, religion, or ritual. It's about a personal, deep, and abiding relationship with Jesus and you. End of sentence. And so what Paul does is he talks about three things. Boasts, that which we boast in. Marks, those things that mark us. And the cross, that which divides the world. Paul says, You will fall on one of two sides when it comes to what you boast in. You here today will either be someone who boasts in your flesh, boasts in what you achieve, boasts in you, your hard work, your diligence, your kindness, your nature, you will boast in the things that you think you've done that make you unique and special, that set you apart from the world. There will be those here today whose boasting is in themselves. And then there will be those whose boast 
is in Jesus. And the language of people who boast in Jesus is, is actually more bold than the boasting of those who boast in the flesh. You see, everyone who you've ever met who boasts in the flesh is also tinged in the back of their mind with a certain level of doubt because they know they are not, as they say, all that and a bag of chips. They love to put on a good show and try to prove to you that they are something that perhaps they are not, and they're just desperate that you won't find out the truth. But if you ever meet somebody who boasts in Jesus, well, they don't mind being bold because the truth is I am nothing. I was nothing. Apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. But there was this man who was all God and all man, and he came to earth, lived a perfect life. He went through every temptation and suffered every defeat, and through it all, he stood firm because he lived and died and resurrected, I can do the same. The boasting in Christ is a bold boasting because it's rooted in reality. And people who don't understand religion will say boasting in a fictitious character is based in reality? Oh, yeah. You see, we have more evidence on the life and the death and subsequent resurrection on Jesus than there is over any historical figure who has ever lived. You don't know this. See, you think your faith is just based on hoping and believing, and gosh, if my neighbors ask me questions about the Bible, I'm not going to know, and I'm doomed. But the research has been done time and time again. Manuscripts that come from the first century post-Jesus of full and intact New Testament canon are so voluminous, they far outpace any historical document ever received. There are over 10,000 full and intact, complete New Testament documents produced within 100 years of the life of Jesus. And in the science of documents, which is called historiography, that makes it the single most verified document in the history of the world. And so when someone says, I believe in Jesus, it's sort of like saying, I believe in science. Ah, so you missed it. You see, most people think if you believe in Jesus, you're too dumb because you don't believe in science and you just move based on emotion and you grew up in church and they teach things and you just blindly believed it because you're too stupid to do your own reading. But what I'm telling you right now, that if you believe in Jesus, you are believing in one of the most verified stories and factual things that has ever existed. Jesus was and is and we can prove it. And the best part about our faith is he forever will be and one day I'll get to see him. Come on, somebody. Or you could just boast in yourself. I'm really good. Oh, boy. I'm really smart. Can you prove it? (laughs) There will be two kinds of people, those who boast in themselves and boast in the Lord. And when Paul writes to the church in Galatea, he is writing to a group of people who are being influenced by by self-boasters. People who do things primarily just to paint a good picture of them. And he is warning them that boasting like that does not lead to eternal life. Boasts. Paul also in this passage of scripture talks about the marks. He says, I bear on me the the marks 
what he's talking about in this moment is three different kinds of physical marks unique to faith, specifically the Judeo-Christian faith. The first one is the one against which he is teaching, the mark of circumcision, the old covenant Judaic practice of removing the foreskin from the outside of the penis as proof that those who had received it were now unique, holy, and made right according to their study and practice of Judaic law. Amen. A physical mark. And then he talks about another mark. This mark isn't invisible to see when clothed. These marks are the marks he, he talks about that are on the hands and the feet of Jesus. You see where practitioners of the law knew that they must suffer and bleed to be marked as holy. Those of us under the new covenant of grace have a savior who would suffer and bleed that you might be marked as holy and saved. See the difference. One is about boasting in self, the mark of the flesh, and the other would be boasting in the flesh that was marked on Jesus. It is a continuation of the same conversation that says, who is on the throne of your life? He's writing to the church in Galatea and saying, it's just Jesus, has always been Jesus, and these people are going to try to convince you that it should be Jesus and you, as though you need to suffer, as though you need to bleed, as though some of you need to do something to improve upon the life and death of Jesus. Now, I don't know how powerful or influential you are, but I'm quite confident that once Jesus did what he needed to do on the cross, I'm not going to be able to spice it up anymore. I'm not showing up to heaven and being like, the whole resurrection thing was pretty solid. But I also wore Jordans on Sundays. And I don't know that's any kudos for me. But that's the boldness of boasting in flesh. It says, yes, and that's good, but I, I like it, and I'll add to it. The boasting in the flesh and the marking of the flesh are religious practices that take Jesus rightly off the throne of our life and say, love what you're doing, but that's my seat. And Paul ends that conversation when he talks about his own marks, the marks that are on him. He says, I bear on the marks, on my body, the marks of Jesus Christ. And he's talking about being a new creation, being a new man, being regenerated and changed and called and deployed. And that calling has cost him something. This is the same Paul who's been shipwrecked and beaten. He's been stoned. He's been chased out of town. He's even been bitten by a snake. You want to talk about a bad day? Paul's had a few bad days for Jesus. And when he writes this letter with his own hand, I in my sanctified imagination am envisioning that the same hand, which would have been his hand of strength, the hand that you write with, which would have also been the same hand that reached into the fire and would have been bit, I can imagine in my head that he's writing to them and saying, I still have the marks of the snake bite from the gospel mission that I've been on. Religion is going to tell you that you need to suffer to earn God's love. 
But Jesus said, I loved you, so I suffered. And Paul says, and I loved you. (laughs) And this didn't even feel like suffering. You see, something happens in Paul's life and in the life of every believer that when they're transformed by the gospel, doing the things that used to scare them, used used to worry them, used to impose fear upon them, no longer hold that weight over their head anymore. Remember the first time you got saved and your pastor was like, you should tell everybody at your job about Jesus. And you were like, I'll get fired. (laughs) And here you are sitting next to somebody at church from work. That's the mark of the new creation. Those things that used to scare you are now scars that prove that you ain't scared of nothing no more because Jesus is in your heart. That's actually what we're building at this church is a bunch of people who, because of the light burning within, are just kind of an all-consuming fire no matter where they go. And people meet them and they're like, I go to Beacon. We got a couple down in the front row. I meet people all over this city and they're like, oh, Beacon, you're CB. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, we know, well, we know Brandy. I'm like, you know Brandy? And they're like, yeah, man. She literally only talks about your church all day long. We had a business meeting. I I had to say yes to Jesus and promise to come to church before we ever got to talk about business. And I'm telling you all right now, that's not like the 10th person who's told me that exact story. Do you know why? Because God brings forth boldness in the life of those whom he radically changes. When he saves you from the pit of hell, you look at everything that calls itself hell like a pity party because you ain't afraid of nothing. Amen. Paul is writing with wounds and scars, and he says they'll boast in themselves, and they'll tell you you got to mark yourself. But Jesus has marked himself, and he's marked me, and I'm here for it. of 10 minutes. What if we didn't finish the last message? We literally might not. That was point one. Here's what Paul is trying to do in this moment. He's talking to the church whom he loves about an issue that has arisen, that it's derailing their faith. And he's trying to recorrect them to land where they need to land. Now, their motives are not wrong. They trust in Jesus and are being duped by teachers of the law who are teaching the same principle, which is change. You see, when Paul comes to the church and he teaches about the gospel of Jesus Christ, he teaches them that they'll be transformed and renewed and made new and all that they used to be will no longer be. They will be become people who are called by the name of Jesus and inherit eternal life. That's a message of change. It says where you were can be no more because there's more on the other side. And the Judaizers, like every other attack of the enemy, don't come in to refute the general concept of change. No, like every attack of the enemy, it's nuanced and sweet and it sounds like almost truth. They say, yes, change is good. Jesus, change, awesome. Prove it. Do you see how simple that change is? 
the wordiness, the see, yes, the, Jesus is wonderful. Do church. Go to church. I don't care if you go to church. Be a wonderful, good person. Just don't evangelize to me. Just don't do this. It's, it's, it's a conversation that says change is good, but don't change like Jesus says change. Do it this way. And here's the thing. That's what all religions teach, amen? I mean, all of religion and faith is about change. Everything that you will encounter that is a divine or supernatural concept behind it will be preaching the message of change. Will be saying to you, you must be different. Of course you should be different. Amen? How many of you are content with exactly who you are all the time? Amen. That's why anyone can say, I have the secret to change. And your ears perk up. That's why all faith says this will change everything. That's why even things that don't call themselves religion say, this will change everything. You go to a Tony Robbins event, he will change everything. Amen? Walking on fire will change everything. Saying these tantric poems will change everything. Doing a week in the dark will change everything. Living in a hot hut will change everything. This kind of yoga will change. This will change you. Of course that's the teaching because we all want to be different. Amen? Here's how it sounds. Muslims say if you change your behavior, you'll earn salvation in the afterlife. Buddhists say if you change your focus, you'll achieve, achieve enlightenment in this life and the next. Hindus say if you change your behavior in this life, it will alter the next life, and then the next life, and then the next life. And Jews, as you know, say the law changes your behavior, and that produces holiness. We get arrested and we go to jail, and they put us in jail so that we're rehabilitated, so that we are changed from the criminal we are to what they would call a law-abiding citizen. We hit rock bottom in our addiction, and so we go to treatment, and they call it rehab, so we can be rehabilitated to become something that we weren't. No longer an addict, but now someone in recovery. The world is always teaching change. And all of these teachings are having one, are having, have one thing in common. Ready? External stimuli put into your life will change you. Hear me? If you do this, believe this, practice this, follow this, attempt this, chase this, then you will change from the outside in. The problem with that is that what happens when you don't have that practice, ritual, appointment, counselor, teacher, room, activity, or anything? If the change has to come from the outside in, then I have to continue to fill my cup with what's outside. That's why when you struggle with sin or any vice, what thrilled you once no longer thrills you later. You always have an insatiable appetite for more. And the same is true of self-improvement. You do one tarot reading and you're like, that was good. The next one, I need more. Let's do crystals. I need more. Let's do this. Here's the thing. Nothing outside can change your inside. That's why the gospel preaches change. From the inside, preach with me, y'all, out. Y'all with me? Because here's what the gospel says. It doesn't say if you do, then you'll be. The gospel says be, and it will change what you do. Check it out. Romans 12, 2. We are transformed by the renewal of our 
a new thinking. And a new thinking comes from a new understanding. It's in your head. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, we are rid of the old man and made new. From the inside out, God begins a regenerative work. Romans 6 and 11 says, once he begins that change, we are then dead to sin and the curses thereof. John 3 and 3, Jesus himself says, you don't do something to be made new. You're just born again and made new from the start all the way. John 15, 4, he says, actually, if you really want to talk about how it works, you just abide in me and I in you. And you said, well, what does abide mean? I've never said that before. So glad you asked. It means... Be still and know that he is God. To find your rest in him and to allow him to do what he needs to do when he needs to do it. And probably more importantly, not dictate any part of it. To abide means to just... Chill out, bro. Amen? All these religions telling you all these things you need to do, and Jesus is like, bro, just relax. Why are you freaking out? I did this. Last couple, Galatians 2.20 says, we're crucified with Christ, and in him we live, and we're made alive. John 15.4, abide, and then Galatians 5, all of those things from the inside then change what we do, we produce new fruit. Religion would tell us if we would produce new fruit, if we would be kind, if we would be peaceful, if we would be patient, if we would be nice, if we would be gentle, if we would have self-control, if we would love and, and express faith and joy, then God would change us. Do you see how that message of the gospel could be perverted? But Jesus says this, just trust me and watch how I do something new. And this is probably my question to you today is, have you experienced newness in your life? How many of you here in this room today have seen yourself do something godly and you were shocked when it happened? <laughs> Y'all been there before? You're just in the grocery store and the lady in front of you is just mean and nasty and you're just like, no worries, have a great day. <gasps> and you're like this, hold on, am I a Christian? <laughs> Look at me. Oh, spirit-filled. You better, come on now. That's actually what the gospel is like. That's what it's meant to be. I'm telling you right now, the gospel is supposed to be changing you from the inside out so you get to discover newness in real time. I'm pushing you to trust Jesus and watch him as he makes you do new things. So you don't have to be rude and think to yourself, stop being rude. All of a sudden, you're just nice. And someone's... No, I got to tell you a little quick testimony. Nope, no time. Someone came to our church about a year ago, and they said, do you know what I love about your church? And I said, Chanel's hugs? Because that's usually first. Amen, see? And they said, check this out. You're so intentional about talking to people. Hold on, I'm not telling you this to brag. That was the weirdest sentence I had ever heard in my entire life. 
Because, raise your hand, I'm an introvert. I got anybody here today? I love to be quiet, and I'll say it to you loud because I love you, and left alone. That's my bag. Like, can we just not talk? That'd be so rad. Can we cancel those plans next week? That'd be even better. Can we not do something? I would love that. And when we started this church, my wife was like, why are you not talking to anybody? And I'm like, I don't know, but it feels good. And she's like, that's not how this works. And so we began to pray, Lord, change me. I can't just be a preacher. We need a pastor. And then three years goes by, and this lady is like, you just, you just hugging everybody? You just talk? She goes, you must be just an extrovert by nature. And I was like, who in the world? Me? That's the gospel change. You say, here's all I have. It's my weaknesses and my liabilities. I can't do anything without you. So I'll just abide in you. I'll continue to cast my cares to you. I'll lay my burdens on you. And I will trust that you will honor your word to renew my mind, regenerate my heart, and make me new. And then the next day, <laughs> someone says something wonderful about you. And God is tapping on your heart and saying, behold, I make all things new. Because neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matter. The only thing that matters, Paul says, the only thing that counts is a new creation. And that's what we're chasing after. Now, I'm going to have the band come up because we're way over time. But I'm going to ask you a question. How are you different? P please don't hear me do my own poetic parable and like it. But not let the Lord ask big questions of you. How are you different? How have you been changing? Or, or why don't I just ask it in a very clear yes or no. Has the gospel changed you? There are three answers to this question. Number one, yes. I can tell you that who I was is no longer who I am. Good news for you. You are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Your eternity is secure. And no, though you may stumble or fall, one day you will walk into your reward. Hear me. You can't lose it. You can't beat him and you can't outsin his grace. Once he's got you, you belong to him. But maybe you're here. And I'm like, how has it changed you? Has the gospel even changed you? Have you been coming to this church? Have you grown up in church? Are you a church kid? And to be honest with you, you ain't no different than anybody else in this world. You feel uncomfortable when you come into the church. You're more comfortable at the bar. You can't wait to get out of here so you can go party. Let me ask you this. Are you actually changing? And the answer to that oftentimes is no, if you're really being honest. You know what? If I'm telling the truth, no. I can play the game. I can look brand new. But no, every week I suffer with the same sin sickness. Every week I struggle with the same things. I'm in a cycle. 
I come to church and I feel better for a moment. And then I'm right back to the same vices. If that's you, because this is our church, I'm going to call it to you straight. You ready? You're in deep trouble. Because you may fake it in front of all of us. But when the day comes, I don't make the decision. Your pastor doesn't vouch for you. If you have not been changed, then you're in two camps. You're either religious. You're just practicing this thing, thinking that if you can heap on activity upon activity, that you'll earn your way into God's favor. I'm going to tell you right now, that life is plagued with guilt and shame and exhaustion, and it leads to death. Hear me, if you came here today because you felt bad about what you did and you thought by serving, praying, or acting like a Christian would get you saved, you're dead wrong. Or maybe you're here and you've been mad all service because you ain't in a relationship with Jesus and you're not practicing religion. You have wholesale rejected God. You sit here and you just wait for me to finish. You're mad when I preach truth. It doesn't convict you. It feels like condemnation. You're cynical over the blessings of God. When I talk to you about line upon line and precept upon precept, how the doctrine that we follow in the New Testament has been the most proven document, not only were you cynical, you were mad and spent the rest of the service Googling a way to prove me wrong. That's you. I'm going to tell you right now, that is seen by God as rejection and rebellion, and you will not find eternal life stuck there. But here's the good news. I once was a wretch undone. I too was a sinner amongst sinners and a rebel of rebels, wholesale rejecting God. But because his grace is so great, he called you here today. Called you here to ruffle your feathers, to offend you. Called you here to think to yourself, this ain't true. And he's like, well, I got you for 40 minutes, so you might as well listen. Here's the deal. This message was for you. See, there's a whole room full of people. We're kingdom kids. Our residence is not here. We go to a place after this. And there's a whole bunch of us who are unlearning the practice of religion so we too can go to that place. And there is still a place for you if you've rejected God. Still a home for you. Still a place where the rebels can be made whole. But you've got to reject that rejection of God. And so here's the call. You're here today. And your answer to God has always been... No. You said it's, it's good for y'all. It's adorable. But that's not for me. You did not accidentally get here today. God called you for me to look you in the face and say, he's gone to prepare a place for you. And he invites you through your cynicism to say yes. But I don't know all the answers. Don't worry, none of us do. That's why we're all chasing after him together, amen? So with every head bow and every eyes closed, I, I, I want to I invite those of you who are here today to break out of religion and break out of rejection. You're here and that's you. You've been stuck trying to earn his favor. You've thought that if you did a million things, it would make him happy for you. 
Would you do me a favor? If today is the last day you're religious and willing to walk in a relationship, every head is bowed, hear me, and every eye is closed. If that's you and you're ready to break religion, would you just slip up your hand? I just want to see you. One, I see you. There it is. Two, I see you. Three, four, five. You can put your hands down. And you're here today and you've rejected God your whole life. You've had every, every reason to prove him wrong. I want to tell you today, today he's called you to make it right. And that answer is just yes. I don't know all the facts, but I'm willing to be proven wrong. I'm willing to receive a relationship, an irresistible embrace from Jesus today. Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. No one looking around. If that's you and you want to say yes, would you slip up your hand? Amen. I see you. I see you. You've rejected him. You've turned from him. Your ways are different. I see you. I see you. Today is the day you, you begin anew. I'm going to pray a prayer. It's just the beginning of something. And I'm going to ask the whole church to pray it with me. This is for all of us, a declaration of faith. And if this is your first time praying this prayer, I want to talk to you after service out front. I'm going to walk with you and make a commitment as a church to help you. Church, would you pray with me? Father God, I am a sinner.